Okay, let's get this party started. I've got a half can of warm Roy water and uh, a mug of tea that's too hot to drink. So I think we're ready to go. <laughs> Every time I start these episodes, these non-scripted episodes, I think, uh, man, I should really have something to say at the beginning. You know, some kind of catchphrase. And then when I sit down and I start thinking about that, and I start <laughs> actually brainstorming it, I realize how stupid <laughs> most of it actually is. So yeah, we'll just stick with the, I've got some tea and I got some water. Let's go. That's good enough for tonight. Uh, I just got back from a walk with the dog and, uh, when I was walking with the dog, we're coming around, uh, one of my favorite sections of the street. There's these nice canopy trees. It's just, even on a hot day, that's still the best place to walk. And as we're walking, this is the place with no sidewalks. <clears throat> the houses are just on the street. There, it's a nicer neighborhood than my own neighborhood where we have sidewalks. <laughs> I don't know how that, I, I really, I've, I've tried to reason that out. Like, oh, it's nicer houses. That's why they don't have sidewalks. But it's, it's weird. It feels like they're missing something that everybody else has. But I guess the idea behind that, I don't know whether it's true, is our houses are nice, so we don't want people walking by on the sidewalk. I don't know if that's true. But that's the reasoning people say, that there's no sidewalks in nice neighborhoods. Anyhow, because there's no sidewalks, I'm walking in the street. I'm walking on the right side of the street. There's a lady and the dog coming on the left side of the street while walking towards each other. I always keep an eye on people with the other dogs because my dog still likes to bark at other dogs and try to, he's getting better, but he still likes to instigate. He just feels threatened, I guess. So as we're walking and getting closer, I notice the woman is talking and without thinking about it, I realize I'm leaning in. Metaphorically, I'm leaning in. I'm not physically leaning in, but with my ears, I'm leaning in, literally trying to eavesdrop on this woman as she's walking and talking. And I caught myself and I said, what am I doing? And I remember why, oh, I shouldn't say I remembered, but I realized why I was doing it because back before you had earbuds and Bluetooth, when people were walking down the street talking, they were usually talking to themselves. Now everybody's just talking on their, on their iPhones. And it always, it seems like they're always talking about dates. Oh, you, well, you know, September, it, why is everybody always talking about dates? I don't know. So anyways, it's boring. I don't want to eavesdrop on people's actual conversations, but back when you could see somebody walking and talking and there was no one around them. If you leaned in, you can really hear some interesting conversations going on with that person and whoever their imaginary friend is, or if they're schizophrenic, I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to worry about using the proper terms here. You get my, you get my drift. This is when you could overhear people talking about the overlords and the implants and Jesus's intergalactic radio station. And I didn't, you know, I wasn't listening to this when I was younger, obviously. I wasn't listening to this stuff uh, to ridicule these people. 
it was just interesting like to hear like whoa that's some interesting thought there that's some crazy thought and uh, i i realized i kind of missed that i miss when i saw somebody walking and i saw their mouth moving knowing that i was going to hear something entertaining and now like i said it's just dates and people talking about other people i don't know so I guess, I guess now if I want to hear that crazy stuff, I can just watch C-SPAN for the House of Representatives because now that's where all that's, all those conversations are taking place, which honestly, it just sucks all the fun out of it, doesn't it? It just sucks all the fun out of those things. Which, which brings me, brings me to something I've been wanting to mention for a while. There are topics that I mentioned in the description of the show, UFOs, uh, Tarot, stuff like, you know, what people qualify as weird or strangeness or paranormal. <clears throat> I love these topics. I'm totally fascinated by them. I don't know what the hell I believe on any of it, which is probably why I enjoy it. I love puzzles. Uh, but I haven't talked about it a lot on the show. And it just happens that at the, at the, point that I transitioned to this show, you know, when the show became, <clears throat> it matters, but it doesn't. I was just coming off of an attempt to do the show as a paranormal show. And it was just like the worst time in modern history to, to be doing something like that. Like, mm, I don't know if I want to ha have a show where conspiracy comes up when it's literally on the news every day. So I kind of steered away from those topics for a while, not necessarily purposefully. I think it was just a natural distaste or not even distaste, but just disinterest in those topics for a while. And, uh, then it was just a matter of like learning, what am I, what am I going to do with the show? How is it going to be the scripted one, the unscripted one, all the stuff that I've been going through that I've finally settled into this version of the show now that I love and I'm totally comfortable with. And I feel like I haven't expressed this yet. I feel like the way that the show is now makes the most sense for me. I think about it. I'm burping right now. Sorry. Yep. Bubbles, warm, warm LaCroix bubbles equals more burps. So probably not the best drink to have during recording. But when I say that the show makes the most sense to me is I realized just the other day, uh, not only that I overused the word realize, <laughs> but I, I came to the realization, that's a sneaky way of saying it again, that what I'm doing with the show is what I would be doing in real life and what I had done for years in real life with friends. I'm reading this. This is so interesting. I've always been that person that like when I'm reading something, I'm watching something, I just want to talk about it. Like, oh, check this out. You got to watch this. Blah, blah. I've always, and then when you watch it, let me know so that we can talk about it. That's always been me. And I don't know why it never occurred to me to let the show be that. And I, I can't take credit for it occurring to me this time either. It just happened on accident. Uh, so because of that, and because I'd slowly been uh, reacquiring my taste for weirdness, 
I think some of that stuff is, it's, it's slowly, slowly got to be working itself back into the show. And, you know, the, those things, I enjoy talking about them, but I don't take them very seriously. I shouldn't say I don't take them very seriously. I don't take them too seriously. I do take them seriously in, especially when measuring it against what I was talking about last week in how to think. I, to look at these things and examine them through the lens of thinking, you know, is it reasonable to think about that? And that's, that's always been the most interesting thing about the category of the weird for me. You know, when I'm watching something, whether it is on, you know, maybe it's an eyewitness account of, of extraterrestrial, you know, they, they saw a UFO. There's always part of my brain that's listening to what they're saying and going, does that make sense? Does that make sense? Not, is that realistic? I, I don't bring that in much because if we were talking about something that's out of the normal, then asking whether something is realistic, it makes no point because it's out of the real, it's out of the normal. Something strange would therefore be, as the word says, paranormal. No, it's not normal. So if it did exist, it would never fit into that, into that category. But what you can ask is, does that make sense? You know, if, if somebody says they are doing this, um, actually, let me use a specific example. I, I tend to get into abstractions that don't make sense sometimes. There's this book that I read not too long ago called Dark Fleet. I do not recommend the book. It is the, the worst form of, of alien conspiracy book, in my opinion. Um, but one of the things in there that just didn't make sense is at one point, the author is talking about extraterrestrials being able to snatch people um, without physically being there, to just snatch them so they disappear. And they can take them to, I guess, their ship or wherever they take them. But then when they return them, they can return them to the exact moment in time that they took them so nobody notices they were gone. Which, of course, insinuates time travel. And then later in the book, they're talking about how this campaign to overtake the Earth has been decades and decades long. I think I've talked about this on the show before, actually. That doesn't make sense. If you have the power to manipulate time in order to abduct somebody and then take them back to the exact moment, then it wouldn't take you decades to overtake a planet. This is the type of thinking that I put into these things. So I do take it seriously. I just don't take it too seriously. Uh, Paul Sappho popularized this concept of strong opinions weakly held. And I like that. It's like I have a strong opinion. You know, it's colorful. It has a lot in it. But I'm not going to defend it to the death. I just want to talk about something passionately and enjoy it. But it doesn't really mean anything to me. I can just let it go. Somebody can disprove it or somebody can, you know, disprove my theory. Oh, okay, cool. Whatever. Strong opinions weakly held. Unfortunately for a lot of people, we live in the opposite of that. We live in the era of weak opinions held strongly. So I think it'd be nice to get back to uh, reversing that. And because of that, I wanted to mention something after last week's show. Um, the thing about this, doing this format, 
about doing a non-scripted format. It means coming in with topics, or at least for me, it means coming in with topics, but you're talking on the spot or I'm talking on the spot. I'm trying to articulate thoughts that have been in my head that maybe I've never articulated before. And I'm trying to do that on the spot. So because of that, not everything comes out correct. Not everything comes out perfect. Not everything comes out, even sometimes not everything comes out in a way that I actually believe. You know, sometimes I'm, I'm on a roll and I think I'm getting somewhere and I'm making logic and then I listen to it later and I'm like, I don't actually know if I believe that. So that is, that's one of the things I want to point out is, and it's something that not necessarily I'm pointing out for me, but I want to point it out because it's something I think that we've been missing in society for a while is this, um, I guess you rough drafting that conversation is supposed to be. This is when you have a conversation with a friend or a family member, when you have a conversation with a trusted person, that's different than having a conversation with anybody else. And the reason it's, it's different because it's because in that intimacy, in that trust, we as humans test and form our ideas. So I have an inkling. An inkling is not an idea yet. It's something that's hinting towards an idea. I have an inkling about something and I talk to my best friend and I, I say stuff that maybe I don't mean, but I'm just trying to get it out and try to articulate something. And through that conversation, I'm learning what's wrong about the stuff that I'm saying. I'm learning what doesn't work. I'm learning what's weak. I'm learning what does work. I'm learning what I actually do believe. And we've been, especially because of COVID and everything like that, I think a lot of us have been missing that. And we've been trying to supplant it with social media and you can't. Because social media is public and you can't do that publicly without expecting some kind of reaction. And this is not going down the line of, oh, cancel culture, cancel culture. I'm just saying that we, we don't, we're, we're using the wrong tool for the wrong thing is that we are using social media for things that reactions that happen in the moment, how we feel in the moment. And that's like the worst place to do it. Because those are the things that we're supposed to be taking into our trusted uh, conversations and testing them out, taking them on test flights. You know, do the wings stay on when this thing flies? No. And I think that's why we have so many weak opinions being strongly held is because nobody's taking their ideas for test flights anymore. What they're doing, they're just posting them online. And then somebody else goes, yeah, I believe that too. But nobody's going, does that even make sense? So I try to do that with this show, um, in the sense of coming in here raw. And there will be times when I say things and then like a week later, I'm like, you know, I've been thinking about that. That was dumb. Or I might say something and then somebody will correct me. Like, you know, actually that's not... Um, that's not true. You didn't take into account this and this. And then I, then I have the opportunity to learn. We're going to go into a little bit about learning at the end of the episode. And especially uh, about that staying open thing. 
that's something that's been on my mind all week. You know, I think back to when I was in my twenties talking about politics, I had no idea what the hell I was talking about. You know, I was basically mainlining punk rock and books by the beats and reading about the black Panthers and Che Guevara. Like I was all, all about outsiders. And to this day, like I still have an attachment to like outsiders and the idea of rebellion and all that. But as you get older, you learn more and you learn that as inspiring as like that idea of like, oh, fuck the system is that it's often a really simplistic worldview and you start learning about complexities, you know, going back to that conversation, I think it was last week too, where we talked about encryption and child pornography. Like back in the day, you know, Snowden, that time I was all encryption, encrypt everything, encrypt it all. Now I understand that, oh, that has repercussions because that means that child pornography will flourish. And it doesn't mean that I know even which, which end of that cover, you know, that, that discussion that I end up on, but I acknowledge the complexity of that. And I think when you start to acknowledge the complexities of things, you start to acknowledge nuance. You start to acknowledge, um, all the things that you don't understand that you stop thinking that you have the whole world figured out, that you have your worldview then you open up to actual, you, you open up your thought to actually progress. That's how we move forward. Not just as people, but we move forward as society is opening up, not uh, slamming down, you know, uh, we'll talk. I think we, uh, I wasn't planning on talking about this, um, during the media section, but there's something, if I remember, that I will say about science while we're in there. Um, the only reason I'm hinting at things that are coming later is because if I don't, then I will go off on a tangent and I, and I will completely lose the whole episode. It'll just be off in the ether and I will be running around with, uh, Wonder Woman's lasso, trying to catch it for 45 minutes. And I don't want to do that. I, and I like going on small tangents, but I don't like getting completely lost because then I listen back to it. And that's when I start feeling like an idiot. Uh, speaking of last week, I mentioned the stuff that I was doing to help my sleep. And I said that there was something knew that I was trying and I was going to come back to you this week and tell you how that's working out. The thing that I was testing out is Four Sigmatic makes a mushroom blend. Well, it's not just mushroom, this one, but is a mushroom plus blend called the adaptogen blend. And I've been trying this out. So basically I'm not going to tell you all the ingredients. I'm just going to tell you like the, the, the four main ones that pulled me in the reason, um, the reason I ended up getting this is because my source of ashwagandha has been the Buddha tea ashwagandha. And the last time that I went to order all of the teas that I told you about from Amazon, I ordered them and three of the four came, you know, like two days later, but the ashwagandha one took like 
almost two weeks. And that sucked because I didn't have another source for ashwagandha. And I was relying on that delicate balance of like these things that were helping me to um, calm the anxiety that the sleep deprivation had brought up and all of that. And ashwagandha was like a big one. Um, So I was was bummed and I was kind of pissed that I couldn't get it. I understand the world doesn't function to get me things in one or two days, but it did make me think, okay, maybe I shouldn't rely on that as being my consistent source of ashwagandha. Maybe I should look look and think about something else. And I had before used uh, Four Sigmatic, two of their products. I'd used their Lion's Mate, and I'd used their, the heck is it called, Superfoods Blend. And I actually love the Superfoods Blend. I might go back to getting that as well. And it's just, it's like 10 of the best mushrooms for you. I'll blend, blend it up and you just mix it with hot water or your tea. And it's on, on top of all the benefits, like for your brain and stuff like that. It's just, it's good for your immune system. So I decided, you know what? I, I'm going to look up ashwagandha. And when I looked up ashwagandha on Amazon, boom, here's Sigmatic popped up. And I'm like, what? Four Sigmatic popped up. Ashwagandha is not a mushroom. What the hell? And I was under the false impression that all of their products were mostly mushroom-centric. Well, here's this adaptogen blend, and it says ashwagandha, and I'm like, maybe it's a mistake of search. So I read the description, and no, damn sure, it has ashwagandha in it. In fact, like I've done, like, I think seven or eight things that are in this adaptogen blend, I think only two or three are mushrooms. So I started reading, I'm like, well, what else is in here? Like, that's great. Like if it's actually ground up ashwagandha, that's even better than the tea. So the other, the other things that I saw in there that looked good to me. And so ashwagandha is great for suppressing, uh, cortisol to some degree. And then, uh, it had reishi in it, which is a mushroom. And reishi is one of the many things that they say it's good for is good for stress. So it's like, there's another, there's two thumbs up. And then there, it has uh, Tulsi, not as in Tulsi Gabbard, but as in holy basil, which is an herb, which is also good for calming. So there's three thumbs up and then chaga. And chaga is one of the things that was in this, that is in the superfoods blend. And chaga is, uh, people use it for coffee replacement. You know, well, this is actually the first, I believe the first product that's for Sigmatic had was chaga uh, powder. And you just make coffee with it. There's no actual coffee in it. Here, I'm using coffee in quotations here. It's not actually coffee. Because there's no coffee bean in it. It's just chaga mushroom and hot water. But chaga gives you energy. But different than caffeine, it doesn't spike you. It doesn't raise your blood pressure. It doesn't raise your heartbeat. It gives you mental energy. And I never really noticed necessarily that when I was doing the, uh, what was that one called? Uh, Superfoods blend. I didn't really notice that. But I figured, hey, you know what? Let's just give it a fourth thumbs up. I could use a little bit of that. That's okay. And then uh, there's a few other things in there that uh, mentioned digestion. I'm like, yep. I'll take that too. 
because the sleep deprivation screws with your gut flora. And uh, so I gave it a shot and I'm on, uh, I think this is day seven. There's actually uh, a little bit of residual of the Four Sigmatic Adaptogen Blend in the tea that I'm drinking now, just because there was some left, some powder left in the uh, bottom of the cup after I finished my, my tea earlier. And I have to say, I am a huge fan of this Adaptogen Blend. And uh, of all the things in it that I connect with the most is actually the chaga. Because as I have been mentioning recently, I've been getting more sleep and it's starting to be like my sleep debt is starting to go down. So I'm starting to function more and more normal. But I notice in the day, like at about three, if I drink that adaptogen blend, I notice my brain firing a little bit more. Like every day I've noticed that I'm getting more and more done for so long. I was struggling with the, that exhaustion. And I just like sitting down to like do something as simple as like arrange show notes, like to get ready to record an episode was, it was exhausting just to think about it and reading and taking notes. And then after I'd read and take notes, that would be like the end of my brain energy. So I never had the energy to take the notes and like put them into my note app. And like, I was working I had about, I would say at best three hours of mediocre energy every day. And it was, it was awful because there were so many things I want to do, but I just didn't have the energy to do them. Well, now with the sleep and with the chaga, that's changing and it's been increasing more and more today. I swear to God, like I had this, this moment I'd already been doing uh, some organizing of some notes and like breaking down some note stuff, which is actually a process we're going to talk about later in the episode, not in a boring way, hopefully. So don't worry about that. We're not going to get technical talking about the idea, the architecture of thought later. Um, but I had already been doing that for a few hours, which normally would have just exhausted my reserves. And I got. I was sitting outside and I got about two, two and a half hours in and I put the book down for a minute and there's a, there was a nice breeze. It was warm. It was like 80 something degrees out, but there was a nice breeze. And I had this moment where it was like, oh my God, I know this, I know this feeling. And it was, it was a feeling, a complex feeling, but the majority of the feeling was satisfaction at intellectual work. That I was sitting and I was thinking, and I was using my brain in the ways that I like to use it. And I had been doing it for enough time that I was actually feeling the satisfaction. You know, the same way that somebody who, who likes doing manual labor feels after they've had a long, hard day of, of working, you know, whether they're a carpenter or whatever, that same sense of satisfaction, like a job well done. That's what I felt right then. And I realized it had been a long time since I had been able to feel that. And what was funny about it is on top of that, I realized I'm like, oh, my tank is not empty. I'm still full energy. At the point when I normally would have been empty, I'm at full energy. 
And by the time I'm sitting down to do this episode, I put close to seven hours of intellectual work in today, which is just incredible. So I, of course, number one, put that to sleep because that's what caused the problem in the first place. But the chaga is just like an extra, extra kick. So that adaptogen blend, I recommend it. I really do. Um, I would love to have Four Sigmatic as a sponsor. You know, like you think about sponsors, like, oh, if I ever get a sponsor, you hope that it's companies that you love. And that would be one because I love their products. Uh, another consequence of sleep returning is that uh, I'm starting to have strange dreams again. Uh, but what I mean by that is most of my dreams for like the last year and a half have been the type of dreams where you realize where they came from. You know what I mean? Like if you watch a show on a true crime show and you go to sleep, you dream about true crime. If you watch a cartoon about wizards, you know that when you go to sleep, you're going to dream about wizards. So what was going on in that short time that I was able to sleep was literally just my dreams doing the shallow sleep process of moving my short-term memories into long-term memory. But I wasn't ever getting into the deep state of sleep. And the deep state of sleep is where the really weird subconscious stuff starts happening. Where you dream about people you haven't thought about for a long time. Where you go to places you've never been before. You know, the type of dreams that people actually want to interpret. It's really easy to interpret the other kind of dream. Like, oh, I dreamt about a hot witch. Okay, I watched a movie about a hot witch. That's not much to, not much to translate there. But when you start having dreams that come out of the blue, to me, that's a sign of deep sleep. Might be different for everybody. I don't know. But for me, I know that that means I've been getting into that deeper level of sleep. And I'm loving it. Those, I love, I love dreams. I really do. And one of the things actually in the description of the show is I think I say something about uh, one of the topics could include strange dreams. So I'm going to tell you briefly. I know nobody likes to hear long stories about other people's dreams. I don't know why I do, but most people don't. I'm going to tell you briefly about this strange dream I had. So I was, and this is fun because I have no idea how to describe this. You know, this, this is one thing. Let's talk about this for a second. One of the strange things about describing something from a dream is describing location. Because location Nothing in dreams is actually concrete, right? Time is willy-nilly. You know, you're holding something in your hand in a dream, and then a second later, you're not. Um, one second, you're talking to your mom, and then they transition into your teacher from third grade, and then they transition into um, the lion from The Wizard of Oz. You know, nothing's like concrete. So we're trying to describe a quote-unquote story, which is what you're trying to do when you tell a dream, you kind of want to set the scene. But but describing a space is really difficult when it's not concrete, you know? In this, in this sense, an almost uh, literal interpretation of the word concrete. I can describe a room, but, uh, well, there's a wall here, but then later there's not a wall there, you know? But... 
I'll say this. The sensation I had was that I was in my dorm room from freshman year of college. It was not my dorm room from freshman year of college. It did not look like my dorm room from freshman year of college. In fact, it was more than like a room. It was like uh, several rooms in, in some ways, in that dreamy way of things being not one thing. But I was there initially with my roommate from freshman year of college, Mr. Ed Royball. And, uh, it was, we were adults, like we were current, we were in our forties, mid forties, visiting our dorm room from freshman year, which is interesting because I think it was the first or second day that we were in our dorm room. This is reality, not the dream in reality back in, uh, 1996. We were in our fresh, our first or second day in our dorm room and the dorm rooms had bunk beds. And when you came in the door into the, into the dorm room, the bunk bed was on your right. And then above the bunk bed, but just, um, half the bunk bed, there was an indentation. Sorry, that's not an indentation. There was an outcropping for this heating duct. So you had a heating duct that ran horizontal through all the dorm rooms. And if you, I had the top bunk, if you laid in the top bunk, the ceiling was closer to your legs below your knees than it was to above you because of that drop down, which was, I think is about a foot. And in the first day or two, Ed and I were in that room and someone came knocking on the door, which is weird. You're not expecting anyone to come knocking on the door because you don't know anybody yet. We open the door and this, this guy walks in, I'd say he was probably a couple years older than us. And he goes, Hey, this was my dorm room freshman year. You mind if I check something? And we're like, uh, I guess. And so he grabs a chair and puts it under in front of the door next to the bunk bed under this heating duct. And he stands up and he opens the grate on the heating duct and takes off the, the grate. And then he reaches inside the duct and pulls out a six foot bong. <laughs> and he's like, sorry, I had to store this here at the end of the year. And then he puts the grate back on and takes off with his bong. And I think maybe that idea of like somebody coming back to visit that dorm room, I think in some way that played out here, that maybe that's why in this dream Ed and I were revisiting that. So this is where things get weird in the dream because there's a strange age distortion. And the strange age distortion is we're very clearly at the beginning, 40 something year old men visiting our college dorm room. Then things become iffy. It's like we start going from being that age to being freshman in college again, and then we're kind of both. It's, you know, like that weird dreamy thing where two things are, are the same thing. And one thing is more than one thing. And I remember this one moment I'm like, somehow the dorm room became like part of a classroom. So I'm like, I'm sitting at those, one of those desks 
and this girl is sitting next to me. And obviously like, she's like a 18 year old girl and she's holding my hand, holding my hand, like in the way that you would like a, you know, like in a storybook where, uh, a knight kisses the hand of a princess. She's holding my hand like that. She's not about to kiss it, but she's holding it up like that. And I remember thinking like, oh, I'm loving this attention. And then all of a sudden, another part of my brain going, wait a minute, this girl's a freshman in college. You're, don't forget, you are 44 years old. And this realization of like, am I 44 years old or am I a college boy? Like this, and this weird age distortion of like, which am I? Which, which of these versions of myself or ages of myself. Which one am I right now? What is real? And I just thought that was so extraordinary. This idea of duality, you know, I'm both middle-aged man and an 18 year old boy. And there's, you know, there's another thing that pops up in this dream too, that pops up in my dreams far too often. I always have this Anytime it has to do with school, I have a dream about school. I always have this part of the dream where it's finals week and I have to go to my classes, but I have not been to them. In fact, not only have I not been to my classes, I don't remember my schedule and I don't remember what rooms they're in and I have no idea where to go. <clears throat> That recurs over and over again. And it, it showed up, excuse me, my throat. Got one of those frogs in my throat, or as we, we used to call it when I was a, a young teenager, fat throat. I got fat throat. So that showed up in the stream, but it was like a minor thing. Usually for me, it's like this really distressing nightmare when I go through that. So I've been wondering in the past day about, about that dream, wondering, why do I always dream about that? I know that like I, I flunked out of college because I, I slacked off and I was like, just not going to classes and I was depressed and all of these things that probably plays into it. There's some really basic reality that plays into that, but why is it still recurring? And I think in some way it's, it's a manifestation of my anxieties. Um, another dream symbol that appears for me a lot, which is like one of my biggest nightmares, tsunami. Uh, yeah, looking up, seeing a giant wall of water and thinking, oh shit, I'm dead. And uh, the tsunami is often a symbol of overwhelm. So overwhelm, whether it's emotions or overwhelm, uh, responsibilities. And I think, uh, the whole class of thing and not being prepared and not knowing where to go is also a manifestation of overwhelm as well. So that's where I'm, that's where I'm going with those interpretations right now. Let's get to the media section. We're already 40 minutes into this, but that's okay. So some interesting stuff that I've gone through this week. I literally just finished this. It's nine o'clock right now as I'm recording this. I just finished this about five, four or five hours ago, which is that I read the novel version of Jurassic Park. I'm going to say something that's very blasphemous for some people. I'm not a huge fan of the movie. It's not a bad movie. It just never did anything for me. And I honestly think it's fairly mundane. Sorry. I love dinosaurs. 
And I think that's why people get into it. They like dinosaurs and it is a good story. But I can tell you after reading the book that the movie is like an amusement park ride. It doesn't, there's, the book is incredible. I honestly, I've never read anything by Michael Crichton before. I'm a fan now because I was not expecting to really give a shit about the book, to be honest. And I've always, I don't, I've never read like a lot of thrillers. I mean, I read The Shining recently, which I loved. And I guess you would call that a thriller, but not really. It's more of a, it's more, it's a horror. You know, it has thriller aspects, but it's horror. It's different. It's about uh, ghosts and supernatural and stuff like that, right? And that book is about alcoholism. But thriller, like the straight thriller genre, I can't think if I've ever read a, a straight up thriller. And wow, I had no idea what to expect for a thriller book. And this, this being like a great one, because when I think of the idea of thriller, I think like... First of all, I think of Michael Jackson, <laughs> but then I think, uh, how can you make somebody as scared in a book as you can in a movie? Because a movie is so visceral, right? Cause you've got sound and jump scares and you have the, you know, the tense music and you've got the visuals. And you can use darkness and you can use tight rooms and all of these things to create the sense of paranoia and to create a sense of tension. How can a book compare to that? I can tell you, in fact, it's, it's the opposite. How can a movie compare to what a book can do? If you remember the movie, you remember the famous scene where they're in the cars, you know, the SUVs and T-Rex shows up and attacks them in, in the, in the Jeeps. They're not Jeeps, but they're as if he's. That scene, I want to say, maybe in the movie at best, it's 10 minutes long. We'll, but we'll say, I think it's probably closer to like five minutes. It's a pretty intense scene. Imagine the fact that that scene takes place over like 30 pages in the book. So depending on the speed that you read this scene, that's only five at best, 10 minutes in the movie is at least double that in the book. It's sustained so much longer and there's so much more detail. And the thing about Jurassic Park is the book that is, it's a, it's almost 500 pages. It's a big book. And once it starts, once the, once things start falling apart, there's no break. So for, we'll say of the 460 pages, 400 of those pages, you are in a constant state of suspense. And that's incredible. It's incredible. It's such a good book. It is such a good book. And the characters, you'd learn so much about the characters and the characters are so different than they are in the movie. You know, like that in the movie, there's this whole thing about like Grant and and, and Sattler are a couple or there's, they want to be a couple 
and she wants to have kids, but he doesn't want to have kids because he hates kids. And then he has to spend the whole movie with these freaking kids. And at the end of the movie, guess what? He likes kids. Well, guess what? Not in the book. That's Spielberg. That's Spielberg. In fact, Grant likes kids. There's actually, let me, there's actually a quote in the book that I highlighted and it literally says Grant liked kids. And this isn't like page 40. And when he sees Tim for the first time, the boy, and finds out that he likes dinosaurs, he goes over to him immediately and starts talking to him. And the two are inseparable for the movie. Like he's bonded with these kids like instantly. So he's like a completely different character. And she is like, so such a, I don't want to say she's a minor role, but she's such a smaller role in the book. And so many of the other characters, like, I think that the one thing that the movie did perfectly was casting, uh, Jeff Goldblum as Ian Malcolm, because in the book, I kind of had different people in mind for almost every character. Um, just, you know, the way you would in a book, you just make up the way you think somebody's going to look except with him. I couldn't see anybody <laughs> but him in that role. And he's a great character, but the thing about the book too, is you learn to like the characters so much that when somebody dies or you think they die, it sucks because you actually like them more. You know, you spent more time with them. And the book is so much more gnarly, you know, like that. I don't remember the movie super well. I've only seen it twice. Cause like I said, I wasn't a big fan of it. Uh, I don't remember in any adult men getting so scared that they pissed their pants happens in the book. I don't remember them finding a severed leg and having to wrap it up in a tarp and carry it around. Like it's, that's much gnarlier. And I will say one more thing about the book, and it's probably true of the movie. Uh, John Hammond, you know, the guy who owns the park, the old guy who owns the park, is the biggest piece of shit I've ever read on a page. Oh my God. I have, I don't know if I've ever hated a character as much as I hate that character in this book. Uh, oh, I, I forgot. There was one other thing I wanted to say about this book. I mentioned earlier in the intro section, something about coming back to science. This is where I want to come back to. There's a, there's a lot in here that is, uh, an indictment in some ways of science, an indictment of the arrogance of science is a better way to say it. Cause that's really at the core of, of what Jurassic Park park represents it's arrogance. And that's why John Hammond is like the worst character because he is the epitome of arrogance and every other character in some way is culpable to their own sense of arrogance to a lesser degree. You know, Arnold thinks that the park is working perfectly because he's that arrogant about the systems. You know, a Wu thinks that nothing could be going wrong with, with his process of genetic engineering because he's arrogant. There's all these things. And talking about nuance and complexity. We live in a time when science is doing incredible things. And also at a time where people are starting to hate science and question science. I'm going to say that 
especially after reading some of the things that, speaking to me and Malcolm, that his character, the mathematician, says about science in this book, that there's a lot more nuance to that. That some of the things that this book touched on, I think this is written in 1990, about science is true to some degree. That there is an arrogance. That there is, that there's something dangerous that science was infected with when it, when it became tied to industry. That everybody's trying to get somewhere faster. And they're trying to do it before everybody else. And they're willing to risk people in order to do that. So there's, there's complexity there. I trust science, but I don't trust it hundred percent because people, there are people still involved in the system and people are not flawless, are not perfect. We're all screwed up in some way and we're all arrogant when we feel like we're doing good. We're all arrogant when we think we are good at what we're doing. So it's a weird time to, I didn't read the book knowing that I was going to read that, but, um, I've left out. There's a, there's a great, a well-written, um, sort of rant that Ian Malcolm goes on, but I don't want to read that because I just don't, I don't want the wrong people latching on to, latching on to that idea, uh, too much. At least this way, they have to do the work and actually go read the fucking book. <laughs> All right. Next thing on here. I just watched the Suicide Squad movie four nights ago, five nights ago. This is the new Suicide Squad movie, the James Gunn Suicide Squad movie. I found out what the difference between this one and the other one is. The other one is called Suicide Squad. This one is called The Suicide Squad. So make sure... You use your, is that, is that an article or a preposition? I think it's an article. Make sure you use your articles correctly in order to uh, name the right movie. Or I guess you could just say Suicide Squad 2021. Uh, the other main difference between these two movies, <laughs> there's so many differences between them. The other main difference is this one's good. <laughs> the other one sucked. The other one sucked, but I still enjoyed it. Uh, I still enjoyed it because Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn, right? That's why most of us endured that movie is because Margot Robbie is Harley Quinn. She's incredible. She's incredible. I haven't seen uh, Birds of Prey, but she's incredible in this as Harley Quinn. Uh, she's incredible in the original Suicide Squad as Harley Quinn. Is, that it? Are they, is those the only three that she's in as Harley Quinn? I think so. Uh, but the other thing about the first movie that was okay was, uh, Will Smith was good too. I like Will Smith, even though I've said before, he's in good movies and shitty movies. Oh, there's an example. It's incredible how, uh, you could have a bad movie and still have somebody just like steal the show like Margot Robbie does. So it was good to see her be able to reprise that role in this movie and this movie actually be good. In fact, I'm going to say something quite bold. Remember, strong opinions weekly held. I'm going to say that this is one of my favorite comic book movies, period. It rides a delicate balance that a lot of comic book, movie, comic book movies have not been able to do and some could not do. And that is, it's a joke, 
you know, it, it acknowledges the camp and the weirdness, but it's also not afraid to take itself seriously. And I mean that in multiple, in multiple terms. It's, this movie's hilarious, but it's also dark as dark. You know, I don't know if you know what the Suicide Squad is, but essentially it's the idea that the government goes and takes these metahumans or supervillains. They're not really supervillains because they're not super. A lot of these guys are like mediocre second string villains. But it goes and gets them from jail and says, okay, you can work off some of your sentence by working for us and we're going to send you on these dangerous missions. But you can have a bomb inside your brain. So if you misbehave, I'll blow you up. Okay, so that's the basic premise. And because they're criminals and nobody cares about them, they get sent on these insane missions where they're most likely, a lot of them not going to survive. Hence the nickname Suicide Squad. Because, yeah, there's a good chance they're not going to come back. And so this movie is dark because it takes that seriously. It's like, okay, these people are fodder. What would that look like? What would that really look like? But it also takes itself seriously in another way that I've been missing. But I think that funny films have taken on a certain kind of starkiness, a certain kind of condescension that really bothers me. A certain kind of fear of actual humanity that kind of bothers me. Where you have two characters and they're in a comedy and then all of a sudden like they're having a conversation that's like a real human conversation. You have this moment that's intimate, like a real intimate moment. They're talking about something serious, something real, something not comedic. But then they, the movies can't allow that to happen. So they always cut it with a joke or they break it with a joke or, you know, or something blows up. They always cut it off. This is the main reason why I like this movie and why it is one of my favorite comic book movies. It doesn't do that. There are scenes in this movie where characters are talking and you're finding out about them as human beings and they're relating to each other. These villains relating to each other as human beings, because they're not all actually villains. Spoiler. They're just people who made mistakes or people who maybe grew up, uh, trained to do something. And lets those seeds play out and it lets them lay and it, it lets how uh, when people die it lets that sink in and me and Mary talked about in jurassic park like a grown man pissing his pants um imagine going into these situations and even though like you have some kind of power it's probably not that great of a power because you're not a top tier villain you're probably going to be scared some of some of them are probably going to be scared and to allow that to happen. And to allow even like a, a sense of triumph at, at times in the movie to invade and be like, man, this movie is making me feel good right now. Going back to my Ted Lasso point. So yeah, Suicide Squad, two thumbs up. I loved it. Probably going to watch it again later this week. Uh, album this week. This one's tough to talk about. Uh, this is. 
It's between the tides and between the times and the tides by Lee Ronaldo. Lee Ronaldo was the I don't know if you want to say the lead guitar player, but the second guitar player in Sonic Youth. And this is one of his solo albums. What year? I can't remember what year this one came out. I think 2012. It's hard to talk about because I, I love this album. It's really enjoyable to listen to. I just don't know what to say about it, to be honest. Sometimes with music, I just feel that way. It's like, I just like this. I, I don't really know what to say about it. So I've been trying to like put together at least something to say. And I think what you, what you can say about this album is imagine taking Sonic Youth and giving them more of, I don't want to say pop structure, but more of the traditional song structure and then letting the seventies and a little bit of the sixties bleed in a little bit too. And that's kind of what this sounds like to me. It's just a really enjoyable album. So if you like Sonic Youth, um, check it out. Let me know what you think about it. Uh, another thing I don't have a ton to say about, I watched the, the first episode of the new Marvel show, What If. I'm stoked. I'm stoked that this is being made if, um, because I used to love the What If comics. And the What If comic is basically they would take a Marvel situation that you know and say, what if it was like this? So like, for example, this episode was, what if instead of Steve Rogers getting the superhero formula and becoming Captain America, Peggy Carter got it, you know, his love interest, if you're not super familiar with the characters, she's also an agent, but she's an agent for uh, the British government. What if she got it? What if she got the superhero serum and instead of Captain America, we had Captain Carter. And watching that play out, and I don't want to spoil anything about it because Steve Rogers has a really interesting role. It just and it, they did a great job with this. For I was I wasn't sure what to expect because they chose to do it animated. I understand why they chose to do it animated because it would have been a fortune not to do it animated, especially just for one-offs because each episode's a one-off. It's a one-off scenario. What if this? Um, I think I think the next one. I don't know. They're coming out weekly, so the other ones are there. I think the next one is, what if T'Challa, a.k.a. Black Panther, was Star-Lord for, for Guardians of the Galaxy? And uh, that one I'm really interested to to watch because it's Chaz, Chad Bozeman, Chadwick Bozeman's uh, final performance as uh, T'Challa. And maybe his final performance completely, which, by the way... Uh, it is about uh, oh, 10 days from my birthday, which means it's about 10 days from the day that he died. So it'll be the one year anniversary of his death. So cheers to a great actor. I'm, I'm hoping with it, maybe what they're going to do is release that episode. Maybe on the, oh, I don't know. Maybe that's not a nice thing to do, to release it on the day he died. I don't know, but I'm looking forward to that. I'm, I'm enjoying the show. I'm, after one episode, I'm sure I'll enjoy more of them. If you're into Marvel, and uh, you should check it out. I think that um, what Disney's doing with the Marvel shows on their Plus service is better than the movies. Another controversial opinion. Another another uh, strong opinion. Hold weekly. 
One other thing I want to fit in this section real quick is I have mentioned ways to save money on books. There's one that I left out that I totally forgot about and I shouldn't say I, I totally forgot about it. I forgot about it because I couldn't find my damn library card. And you need your library card to use this. But there's an app called Libby. And Libby allows you to use your library card to borrow digital books, audiobooks, and digital magazines for free. So that's really great. If you're using, like I was, like I'm using Script, and then you have uh, Kindle Plus Unlimited, and then you have Libby, you've got access, I'd probably say to like 80 percent of all the books out there for the equivalent of like $20 a month. So that's, that's a pretty good one. So check out Libby and even if, yeah, maybe even if you don't even want to do the other two, Libby is the one that you wouldn't want to do because it's free. You just got to get that library card and library cards don't cost money. I don't believe I've never paid for a library card. So check it out. It's great to, it's great to support your libraries anyways, because I'm sure them seeing people checking out stuff and using it gets them more funding because uh, I think that's probably why they would close the library if nobody was using it. So get out there, do that, check it out. Get some free audiobooks at least. That's pretty awesome. Um, all right, I'm going to move in. That, the, I'm calling that section the media center right now. I want to move in the section I'm calling the newsroom. It's never really news. It's really just, hey, I looked at some stuff on Reddit for an hour or two last week, and here's a few things that stood out. Um, this one is actually not Reddit. The first two are YouTube. So the YouTube algorithm handed me this video by, uh, what is her name? Natalie Lynn. I don't remember what her YouTube channel name is, but I've never heard of her. She's a, a vlogger, a young, I think she's probably, she looked like she's like 18 years old. She's really young. And it put this video in front of me called, I became everything I ever wanted. So I watched this video and <clears throat> the, the part that I want to talk about is about, I'd say a third of the way in somewhere before the halfway point. Or she's kind of like, um, kind of like having a breakdown and like, she's sad, like she's crying and she's talking about being a vlogger. And like, I thought I could keep up. I thought I could do this and I just can't, I just can't. And that's the thing I want to talk about. There's this, um, this certain pacing that has made itself, um, de rigueur, you know, like it's just become like the expected pacing of an online creator that makes no sense. And it, I literally have, how many times have I seen videos of people burning out? And I'm very sensitive to this, having done daily vlogging back in 2016. And the reason that I stopped after 200 episodes was I burned out hard, hard. I think I burned out like three or four times during there, but somehow I managed to keep doing it. But then when I got to the end, I just couldn't do it anymore and I didn't care anymore. And this pacing, I think. So essentially what's going on is, uh, 
people are pushing themselves to make content at a rate that's really not sustainable. And the reason that they push themselves to this rate that it's not sustainable is because they, they've been told and evidence has borne out from these social media sites, um, sorry, not social media sites, but these media sites like YouTube or social media sites that if you don't keep up that pace, you don't grow. And if you don't grow, then you never get to the point where you can monetize it. If you don't get to the point where you monetize and you grow more, then you can't make a living doing this. So you have to live and breathe it. And you got to pump out videos and pump out videos and it burns people out over and over again. And these people are burning out only to profit Google and these other companies. If you think about all of the vloggers that didn't make it to the point of being able to monetize enough to make a living, then all of the work they did, all the stuff that they didn't get paid for, all that work lives on YouTube and gets YouTube views so that they can play their commercials and they make money off of these people's work, which is fine because they knew that when they went into it, except that they're all going into it with the expectation that they will be able to continue at the rate that they're, that they're setting and get to a point where they make money. But the pacing is not realistic. Few people survive. Even Casey Neistat eventually quit daily vlogging. He could only do it for so long. And his brother, actually, there's, uh, damn, I think it's on Rich, on the Rich World podcast. Van Neistat, Casey's brother, who now has a YouTube channel, an excellent YouTube channel. He has an interview and he's talking about how, when he first decided he's going to do his videos, he actually kickstarted it and said, you know, give me the money to kickstart to, to make these videos. And I'm going to make this series of videos. And then he decided to become a regular YouTuber, but going through the process, Casey, his brother told him, all right, if you're going to do this, you got to do it, but you got to do at least two videos a week. And he, you really have to hear the way he talks about it in the interview, because I don't really remember, but it's basically, basically like, a, oh, I don't think I can do that. I don't think I can keep that up. And everybody that goes into this has that same reaction. Oh, I don't think I can keep that up. And the more you do it, the more you realize I can't keep that up. So what people are really doing is burning themselves at both ends, hoping to cross some finish line. And it's just, it's depressing. It's really depressing because all of these people that are doing these things are incredibly creative people and we're losing these creative people because when you burn out, you're done. Trust me, having been there, you burn out, you're like, I'm, I'm not doing that. To this day, it is, it's almost five years to the day. You know, we're about a month off. I think it was September of 2016 when I said, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. To this day, I still have an aversion to doing video. 
to this day. And that's sad because I learned a lot of stuff about making videos. And if I had continued, if I had nurtured that, I would probably be really good making videos right now. I probably would have made some short films. I probably would have done more stuff in that creative realm. But instead, I burned it all. And that's a bummer. And I don't know if it's because I watched that and the YouTube algorithm is that good or it's just lucky. But another video that got spit out to me not too, too long afterwards was this video called How Toxic Hustle Culture is Slowly Killing You by Sorella Moore. This is actually on her finance channel, Sorella Moore Finance. She has two channels. And it, she talks exactly about that. You know, Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk, he was well known for hustle, 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 hustle. You know, this keep going, outwork everybody. Grant Cardone is known for this as well. Um, but I think both of them have kind of backtread on that a little bit over the years because they realized that, like it's killing them and it's killing other people. So some of the things that she suggested here, she says exactly what I've been saying about taking breaks and making room for breaks in my life, sprints and rests. Um, she talks about in the context of being an entrepreneur, but like in context of anything, it's all about sprints and rests. Like, yeah, you got to bust a little butt here. You got to do work. You have to do work to do, you know, you can't just rest all the time. You have to work, but then rest and then sprint and then rest and then sprint and rest. Um, she mentions a study that showed that people who work over 50 hours per week are less creative than the people who work less hours. That's, I mean, I'm sure that, that that matters in the entrepreneurial field, but if you're in the creative field, that sentence is death, you know, like you're less creative and your job is to be creative. Mm -hmm. Not good. She also mentions a Japanese word, Kuroshi. Yeah. They have a word in Japan for death from overwork because I don't know if this is still going on, but for a long time, people were just found dead at their desk at work from heart attacks or aneurysms, just pushing themselves too hard. So I'm, I'm really focusing on, uh, I don't do it exactly as he talks about it, but Cal Newport has this, uh, idea of the shutdown, that there's a certain part of the day where you shut down, you know, like you would a computer back in the day. You go through the process of turning the computer off that you have to, he says, you have to go through a process to shut down your work part of the day, create some kind of like ritual, whether it is like a checkbox in your notebook, They're like, okay, shut down complete. And to just allow your mind to shift in that shutdown mode. It's very hard for me. It's very hard for me to turn off, to just sit and watch TV and just relax and enjoy it. I always think about what I should be doing. Should I be, oh, maybe I should go over and organize those news. And maybe I should post another one of those old, old blogs so that I can get that up to date. Maybe I should be checking the stats on this. There's always something. And I have to learn to turn that off. Because I don't want to be a victim of Kuroshi. Plain and simple. Especially after years of getting over years of really bad anxiety and then feeling the exact same thing when I had the sleep deprivation 
It's not good. I don't want to live that life. Mm. All right, one more thing. This one is, uh, oh, sorry, two more things in this section. This is from Tech Life Magazine, issue 505. Sorry, I don't know if you could hear that clicking. I just literally moved my lip and it made a weird click sound. <laughs> Tech Life Magazine 505. Uh, the article is actually, do I want to tell you what that, yeah, I can tell you what the article is. One of these, I don't want to tell you the name of the article because it kind of spoils what we're going to talk about. The article is Cosmic Gulp. Astronomers see black hole swallow neutron star. So this is exactly what it sounds like. It's a short article about uh, astronomers witnessing a neutron star getting swallowed up by a black hole. But that's not what I want to talk about. I want to talk about something I noticed in this introduction. So I'm going to read you the introduction. Talk about a heavy snack. For the first time, astronomers have witnessed a black hole swallowing a neutron star, the most dense object in the universe, all in a split-second gulp. Ten days later, they saw the same thing on the other side of the universe. In both cases, a neutron star, a teaspoon of which would weigh a billion tons, orbits ever closer to that ultimate point of no return, a black hole, until they finally crash together. And the neutron star is gone in a gobble. Okay, so why I point that out, I think it highlights a problem that people have in understanding probability. And I'm prefacing this by saying I am no expert in probability or statistics. In fact, I think I got a C in my statistics class in college. I think that that's the, the same year that I fucked out. <laughs> so this is not coming from a mathematical perspective. This is coming from my understanding of probability and how it comes up. And you'll understand why I'm bringing this up. But if we think about um, dice, okay, dice have six sides. So when you roll a dice, your odds are one in six if you're trying to get a specific number. So if you want a three... That means that you have a one in six chance of getting a three because one of the six sides is a three. What it doesn't mean, and people seem to think it means, is if you roll the dice six times, you will get a three. One in the six refers to the chances of each roll. So when you pick up the dice and you try to roll for a three, you have a one in six chance. If you pick up the dice to roll it again, you still have a one in six chance. It doesn't go down to one in five because you rolled once already. And the reason I bring that up is because this is something that it's this fundamental misunderstanding that leads to these ridiculous statements that I hear about life in the universe. And they come up in these, you know, like shows like Ancient Aliens and stuff like that all the time. Because people don't understand the fundamentals, the basic, the most basic fundamentals of probability, which I just explained there in like two sentences. And the way that this misunderstanding usually manifests itself is one of two ways. Either we as humans are so special because we are the first time in which the perfect conditions of life 
and habitat and distance from the sun came together to produce life. Or number two, that the odds of these conditions, which are referred to as Goldilocks conditions, the odds of them happening are so astronomical that it means that there can't be other life out there because the, the numbers are too large. Okay, you might already see a problem with both of those things, but these are things that get said all the time and that just kind of pass over people. So let's start with a, a couple things that I see wrong with this. First of all, we don't know that what we refer to as the Big Bang is a singular event. We don't know that this Big Bang, it was the first time it's ever happened and the only time it's ever happened. We don't know that. We can't know that. For all we know, Big Bangs could be happening on pinpoint regularity. But the scale between them is so immense that no civilization has ever lasted long enough to measure that. Maybe every 600 zillion years, there's another Big Bang. And by the time that one comes around, there's nothing left of radiation or anything left of the other one to be measured. We don't know that. We can't know that, right? It could be happening over and over and over and over again. So we can't assume that we are the first time based on that. Another thing, um, astronomers Adam Frank and Woody Sullivan, they estimated the odds of the complex, technologically advanced civilization evolving like us. And the number they came up with, they said it must be at least 2.5 to 10 to the negative 22 or 22nd, 10 to the negative 22nd, which is astronomical. It's a huge number. It's such a number. I don't think we have a name for that number. We have to use numbers to describe it because it's more than a billion. It's more than a zillion. It's more than a trillion. You know, it's more than a quadrillion. It's enormous. So it makes it sound impossible, right? But remember another assumption that we have about space. It's infinite. And if it is infinite, then that number doesn't mean a whole hell of a lot. There's another assumption that we have too about the, we talk about the Big Bang and the universe and how the universe is expanding. It's all coming from that central origin place and spreading itself out slowly through time, right? Well, if space is infinite, how do we know that there aren't two, three, five thousand other universes doing the exact same thing zillions and trillions and quadrillions of miles apart? That the, how do we know that the infinite, infiniteness of space isn't filled with expanding universes? We don't. So therefore, we can't assume anything. And going back to probability, just because your odds are 2.5 to 10 to the tw negative 22nd, or maybe they're just one sixth, it doesn't mean something will only happen once in that amount of time. So let's, let's let go of the big number and go back to that one out of six, right? Just because you have a one in six chance of rolling a three doesn't mean if you roll the dice six times, you're only going to get three once. Because once again, 
The odds don't have to do with the number of times. It has to do with the chance of every single occurrence, every roll in the case of the dice. This is actually the difference between probability and chance, or sometimes we like to call chance luck. Probability dictates the odds of rolling a three and says that they are one in six. Chance dictates how soon that three comes up and how often it comes up. So you have a one in six chance of rolling a three. You might, by a chance, get that three the first time you roll. You might get it on roll number six instead. It might also take you a hundred rolls to get a three. Or maybe you never get a three at all. Or maybe you roll four of them in a row. It's all chance. So going back to why this has anything to do with that article. For the first, I'm going to requote two parts. For the first time, astronomers have witnessed a black hole swallowing a neutron star. Oh my God, we've never seen this before. Next sentence, 10 days later, they saw it again. So they went from never seeing it again to it literally happening on another end of the universe 10 days later. That's chance and probability. I just think that's so cool. Uh, another little news item. This is about uh, Lucas Valley, as in George Lucas. I'll, um, I'll be honest. I'm, I have not been a huge fan of George Lucas. Um, of course, I love the original Star Wars. I was born in 1977. I don't think anybody born in the same time as me, anybody from Generation X, didn't love those films. Um, doesn't still probably love those films. But when he went back and he started messing with those three films, that pissed me off. He added a CGI Jabba. He inserted, he removed the guy who played Anakin, the ghost of Anakin, you know, at the end of, of Jedi, there's the ghost of Anakin, the ghost of Yoda, and the ghost of Obi-Wan Kenobi standing together. He removed that dude and put Hayden Christensen in. And then, let's, I mean, the most egregious thing that he possibly did in those movies was screwing with the Greedo Han duel and making it obvious that Greedo shot first. Which, it was supposed to be debated. I was always on the side of Han shot first, and I thought that that said a lot about his character. You know, that he was a little bit of an outsider, right? He didn't play exactly by the rules. But the thing here, the thing that pissed me off about these the most, the reason I became not a fan of him, is because you don't go back and change shit in a film like fucking 20 years later. That's, that's dumb. And to, to me, like a movie is, it's, it's like a stone artifact, you know, here it is. It's, it encapsulates this moment in time. It's just like going back and watching comedy from the eighties, right? Most of it, you couldn't get away with saying now because a lot of it is stuff that we have evolved past saying, but you don't go back and change those jokes. They're there. They were said then. 
And that says something. That says something about the growth of society. This was acceptable. You know, homophobic jokes were acceptable. And uh, we, in fact, we thought they were funny. But then we grew up, and now we don't. That's why it's important to leave those things. But anyways, this, this is not the point. Huh? <laughs> this is the article. I'm not going to read you the title of because it kind of jumps to it. But me not being a fan of George Lucas is the setup here because I may change my mind. Um, from the article, when Star Wars creator George Lucas planned to build a Lucasfilm production studio in his Grady Ranch property in the affluent Marin County, California, he was met with staunch opposition. The local residents protested the project, citing increased traffic, ruined views, potential damage to the local environment. In 2012, Lucasfilm announced that it had scrapped the 2,600, uh, sorry, 263,701 square foot project. This is from an article on CNET, by the way. So the basic story here is George Lucas in Lucas Valley, which is freaking named after him, uh, in Burton County, wants to build a movie studio close to his house. Because guess what? He wants to make films on property that he owns. And the Marin County residents don't want him to. Oh, what if more people come here? Oh, what if I can't see the trees the way that I can now? That's basically what happened, right? A bunch of really whiny people go and they, they made a stink. So George Lucas says, fine, cancel it, whatever. But he says, okay, you people, rich people, rich, spoiled people, if you don't want a movie studio, I understand. Instead, I'm going to build a 52-acre, 224-unit, low-income housing unit. Because enough rich people live here, it's time to make housing here for normal people. And guess what? Greedy Ranch, the property, it's already been zoned for residential use. It was before I bought it. So you can't stop me. And, quote, after years in stasis, working with the regulations that govern affordable housing grants, George Lucas now plans to foot the bill himself. So in other words, he was trying to get grants to do this, to create affordable housing, and it was just a pain in the ass. He the property sat there for three years with nothing happening. He said, you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to pay this myself. To the tune of upwards of $150 million. This not only allows the project to proceed without jumping through those hoops, it also means that the housing can be allocated to specific groups, such as seniors, nurses, and teachers. Wow. Hurry for a George Lucas, man. Way to take a lemon and make lemonade. And that they make a point at this end of this article, too, that that's not the only time he's been generous. That on the sale of, Luke, of Lucasfilm to Disney in 2012, 70-year-old Lucas pledged the $4.05 billion in proceeds of the sale to education. He gave all the money to education. George Lucas, I may not ever forgive you for making episodes one through three and screwing with the original trilogy. 
but you do hold a more special place in my heart today now that I see that you're actually, sounds like, a good person. And I have to admit that as much as I hated episodes one through three, if you had not made them and revised the Star Wars universe, we may never have received Rogue One and the Mandalorian. <laughs> All right. We are nearing the end. I have one last thing to talk about. And uh, this is kind of more of the feature section. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about Zettelkasten, which is a note-taking system, but I'm not actually going to do what most people do when they talk about Zettelkasten, which is tell you how to do Zettelkasten. You can go to YouTube and look at that. Zettelkasten is just a German word for slip box. What the hell is a slip box? It's a box that you slip pieces of paper into. Okay. This is all coming from a book that I just finished, which is called How to Take Smart Notes by a guy named Sumke Arans. Or if you want to read it phonetically American instead of German, Sonka Ahrens. The whole Zettel casting uh, methodology comes from this guy by the name of Nicholas Luhmann. Nicholas Luhmann, I think he was the, the son of a baker. He's a German guy, son of a baker. He went, I believe he went to law school, but then decided to be a public servant. Um, but he, he always loved reading and specifically loved reading about sociology. And he kind of created his own sort of note-taking methodology, which is Zettelkasten that we're talking about here. And <clears throat> after a while, he used this methodology to put together some of his ideas, his sociological ideas. And he took them and he handed them over to this guy who was, he's basically one of the most influential sociologists in Germany at the time. And he handed these thoughts over to the guy and he said, you know, what do you think of these notes? So, you know, what do you think of this manuscript? Let me know. You know, if it's dumb, let me know how to fix, you know, my problems. He wasn't trying necessarily to publish it. He was just looking for feedback on the ideas that he'd been working on. This sociologist read it and was floored. Like, wait, you're just a public servant and like, wow, you should be a professor at this new university. Uh, but Lumen was like, nah, I don't really have the qualifications to be a professor. I don't think I know enough to be a professor. So I'm going to take some classes on sociology so I can be classically educated on it. And in the meantime, I'm going to put together my theses, which is so, yes, it sounds like feces, <laughs> but it's the plural of thesis. So he put together his doctoral thesis and one that is called the habilitation thesis. I don't know what that is. It's the second kind of thesis, maybe specific to sociologists. I don't know if you know how long it usually takes someone to do a thesis, but it usually takes years. Some people, decades. <laughs> Lumen put both of these theses together in under a year while taking the classes. And it's all because of this system that he had created. And he, he attributed 100% to the system. Um, oh, here's a quote from the book. In Germany, a professor traditionally starts with a public lecture. Oh, this is, sorry, I should preface this. This is, this is a quote to kind of give you an idea of what he, where he went with this system, what he was able to create with this system. So he 
obviously he puts together those things. Now he's applying to become a professor. Quote, in Germany, a professor traditionally starts with a public lecture presenting his or her projects. And Lumen too was asked what his main research project will be. His answer would become famous. He laconically stated, my project, theory of society, duration, 30 years, costs, zero. In sociology, the theory of society is the mother of all projects. So he goes to them and they said, all right, what are you going to work on? He says, I'm going to work on the big one and I'm going to do it for 30 years and I don't need any funding. And in those 30 years, Nicholas Lumen published 58 books and hundreds of articles. And that doesn't even include the translations or the books and articles that they found posthumously. I think there was like six books they found that were complete, just not published when he died. 58 books. And we're not talking like pulp novels here. We're talking about transformational books on social theory. Like he is now, Lumen is now considered one of the greatest sociologists of all time. And it was all because of this system, according to him. So the question is, what was he doing differently? What is, what's, what's so different? What could he be doing so different that he would attribute being able to write 58 books and hundreds of articles, putting together two theses in under a year? What's so different? First, you have to understand how most of us are taught to write. And for the most part here, we'll be talking about, um, nonfiction writing or writing theses, writing papers, writing essays. Okay. That's the type of writing we're talking about here. Most of us are taught to do that top down. We're taught linear processing, top down linear processing. What does that mean? It means you make a choice what you're going to write about. I want to write a paper about how Nicholas Lumen learned to become a sociologist. And then what do you do? Actually, that's a, that's a bad thing. Let's, let's, let's give that an actual argument. I want to write a paper about how Nicholas Lumen was the most overrated sociologist in the history of Germany. Okay. Now there's a ballsy thesis, right? What you do after that, you make your choice top down, right? Your choice is at the top. Then you move down. Now you find the evidence. You go out and you research and find all the ways that he's overrated. You starting to see anything that's a problem here with this type of thinking that we're all taught? There's this thing called confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is when all you see are things that confirm your perspective or your worldview. So in the case of writing this paper, by going top down, you say, I'm going to write a paper about how he's overrated. Then when you go to find evidence, you're going to be attracted to the evidence that proves your point, And you're going to be repelled by the things that contradict your thesis. So 
you have confirmation bias, which means that whatever you're writing is biased. It's not, there's a legitimacy to it that it lacks. It also means that what you're writing is weak because you didn't take everything into account. So your argument is actually lopsided and it's missing a whole bunch of stuff. And when you work top down, you fix your current state of understanding. What does that mean? It means that <clears throat> I'm saying, I'm making a, a decision at the top, at the beginning. I'm saying Nicholas Luhmann is overrated. And I'm making the assumption that after I go through my research process, I will feel the same way that I will not grow, change, or learn in the process. That's the problem with what we're typically taught of how we're typically taught not only to write, but to think. I mentioned last week, I'm interested in how people think, not what people think. This is how people are taught to think. Why? Because it's really easy to teach someone the process to write a five-paragraph essay by teaching top-down linear processing. Because it's simple. It's step-by-step. -step. Come up with a thesis. Go find your sources. Read your sources. Copy your links. Make your arguments. Structure your paragraphs. Done. Easy to teach. But what Zettelkasten is, is it's bottom-up. So before I can go here, I do have to tell you a tiny bit of what Zettelkasten is, but I'm going to give you the briefest, shallowest definition of Zettelkasten. What Lumen did was when he was reading, he always had a pile of, they always say slips of paper, but you might as well say index cards. We're talking four by six sheets of paper or four by six index cards. Had those sitting there. Every time he would read something that was valuable, he would make a note on a card. So, for example, if he is reading a book and he comes across a section where the author is talking about top-down versus bottom-up thinking, he pulls out an index card and says, page 57, uh, top-down thinking versus bottom-up thinking, flaws with linear processing, advantages of bottom-up, something like that. So he's marking a page number, location, and then making a note as to why that's valuable. Okay? This is different than highlighting. Because highlighting, you're going, this is valuable. This is valuable. This is valuable. And then when you get to the end and you go read your highlights, you're like, why the hell did I highlight that? What, what was it? Because the insight that you had at that moment doesn't always stick with you. And you go back and you read it and you're like, I, I don't know why I highlighted that. What was valuable about that to me? But what he's doing is capturing it in the moment. Okay? So that's the first thing. So he's got these index cards with these. This is, where the, this is why the slip box, right? These go into a box. So what he would do with these, I'm not going to go through the whole process because there are some steps here that I'm skipping, but essentially what he would do with these is he would take those, what he called the fleeting notes, or the literature notes, depending. Um, I guess these would, these would have been literature notes because he was reading from the book. You take these literature notes and he would rewrite them. And he would rewrite them 
in his own words. I'm going to go into why all that is important, but he would rewrite these things in his own words. Him explaining the idea that this author wrote that interests him. Okay? And then he would number these cards. And then he would put them in the box. And then what he would do is connect the cards. This card's connected to this card because this idea connects to this idea. And then as those connections started to cluster and things were starting to cluster up, you go, oh, wow, look at, I have about 25 cards here, all on this topic of linear processing. I guess I can write a paper on linear processing. Okay. Bottom up. That's what bottom up means. You haven't made a decision on what to write about. You haven't made a thesis. You haven't done anything. All you've done is collected information. And then when it clusters, you can see a topic. And what you see with that topic, so you top down linear processing is the topic, right? Now you look at everything you have. And because you didn't make a decision top down about what it was going to be about, you're going to have things that support each other and things that contradict each other. So you have evidence that's free of confirmation bias because there was nothing to confirm. There was no original thesis. So now what you can do is you can look at what you actually have and make a thesis off of everything that you have. Obviously not everything in the world, but you can look at the contradictions and you can look at the confirmations and decide what all of that means without having to ignore it and hide stuff. That's bottom up. There's no predetermined endpoint. The endpoint makes itself clear when ideas cluster. And it's focused on understanding, not on proving something. You're trying to understand something, not prove something. It follows questions. It looks to fill in gaps. It looks at what are the most interesting things. And when something contradicts something else, because you don't have a confirmation bias, you don't have a predetermined endpoint. When something contradicts something else, instead of being repulsed by it, you're excited. Oh my God, this contradicts that. What does that mean? What, what direction am I headed in now? And that becomes exciting. So you come to understand through the process. You don't make a predetermined decision and then work to prove your thesis. That is the core of why he was able to do this. Another key part of that process was writing them down on those cards, externalizing your thinking. Because when you try to keep everything inside of your head, you lose stuff. It gets mixed up. When you can externalize it, you can let it go and know that it's somewhere. And then there's an important part. There's a whole thing in the book where he talks about the importance of forgetting ideas and then rediscovering them later. Because you can come back with a different perspective and now you see something different than what you saw before. But because these things are written in your own words, you don't look at it and go, I don't know why this is valuable to me. It's in your own words. So now you, as long as you put the work in to make sure that like you were clear with your own wording, 
Now you look at it and you go, okay, I know what I was saying before, but now I kind of see it this way. And that becomes exciting instead of scary. And when you put things in your own words, to take an idea that someone else says and to put it into your own words, it forces you to do two things. It forces you to actually understand it. Because so often we do this kind of like head nod understanding. You, you read a paragraph and you go, oh, I dig that. But then if somebody asks you, what does it mean? If you can't articulate what it means without actually reading the quote, then you don't actually understand it yet. Because acknowledging that something is valuable is only the first step in understanding it. Taking it inside yourself and then putting it into your words is the bulk of understanding. So you have to take it, you have to reword it in your own words. And then also when you do that, that encourages you to do the second thing, which is to elaborate upon it. Ideas shouldn't be stopping points. They should like spread off like roots on a tree in every direction possible. And that's the, the power of, of his Zettelkasten system was most systems, the more stuff you put in them, the more they get bloated. His is the opposite because clusters are something you want, then the more stuff you put in there, then the more clusters you get and the more efficient the system becomes. But there's also two other things that are really important about these little cards that he was doing is he said, you have to be brief. Don't be long-winded on your cards. Keep it brief. I want to keep it simple. Not only does that make sure that you understand it, because if you can't explain something briefly, you probably don't understand it, but it also makes it more useful. Because essentially what you're doing, the reason these are on cards is you're creating Lego blocks. By taking them and putting them in your own words and putting them onto a card separate, away from the context of the rest of the book, you're also encouraging abstraction. And what I mean by that is you may take an idea that has to do with construction. And when you abstract it out and you put it onto this card, it now becomes something that could be moved into other contexts. Oh, this idea of always taking the time to set up things before you work. I got this from construction, but you know what? I could also apply that to writing. I could also apply that to painting. I could also apply that to, um, what do they call that thing where you jump the horse over the, I can't remember what they call it, to barrel racing, we'll say. You can apply it to different contexts because now it is an abstraction. It is an abstract idea, which means it's modular. So the idea is, is useful for more than one thing. Every new piece that you put into the system has to be considered in relation to the whole. And I mean the whole of the system because the system is an externalization of your thoughts because the only things you're saving are the things that you find interesting, the things that you find valuable. So what you're creating is this externalized structure of your brain. So you take this new idea and you go, how does this fit with everything else that I have? Oh, it connects to this one here. It connects to this one here. It connects to this one here. And then what you create is this line or not one line, but you create these lines of thought. So you can pull up card one and it says, this is related to card seven and card 58. Well, if you, it's like a choose your own adventure book, almost like, so you take this and you go, well, let's go to 58. You get to 58 and 58 is connected to three other cards. So you pick one of those three 
and it leads you down a different line of thought each time. And that's the importance of the connections. So I know this is a little abstract and a little bit, maybe a little nerdy for some people, but I thought what might help is a very brief explanation. I'm not even explanation, a very brief example of something from my own settle casting process. This is still new to me, but this is something that actually happened today from notes from this book. And I want to show you how something like this can happen. Um, so basically what I had is I had a quote from page six of how to take smart notes that I thought was interesting. And the quote is, it is usually the best students who struggle the most. Good students wrestle with their sentences because they care about finding the right expression. It takes them longer to find a good idea to write about because they know from experience that the first idea is rarely that great and good. Questions do not fall into their laps. They spend more time in the library to get a better overview of the literature, which leads to more reading, which means that they have to juggle more information. Okay, that's the quote. So you're reading the book and you go, whoa, interesting that good students have to actually, it's harder for good students than it is for poor students or weak students. So now what I have to do, I have to take that, right? And I have to abstract that. I have to create that and put that in my own words. So here's what I did with it. Good students struggle more than mediocre students and even more than poor students because of the effort they put into getting a grasp on their understanding and the effort they put into expressing that understanding. Okay. Now, what do I do with that? I told you I have to make connections. So here's a connection that I made. This idea, oddly, reminds me of this other idea that great writers write slowly. I'm not going to read you the quotes that all these things came from because we'd be here forever. So I'm just going to read you my abstractions of these ideas. But I'm reading this note about good students have to work harder, right? And it reminds me of this other note that I wrote. Great writers take their time. They write slowly, allowing their minds to process their thoughts and time to discover the right words to express them. James Joyce wrote only 100 words a day for seven years before finishing Ulysses. Ernest Hemingway rewrote the last page of A Farewell to Arms 43 times. T.S. Eliot only wrote 150 pages of poetry in 25 years. And there's nowhere I'm going to go with that yet. But that's connected, right? Good students have to work harder and great writers have to write slower. That could mean something. Another connection to the original idea that good students struggle more. One method that these students employ is good students find relevant connections in other fields. That's the note. And the note says, good students avoid tunnel vision and look beyond the problem they are facing and even beyond their own disciplines and areas of knowledge. They find relevant connections in other fields. And where do I go with that? Well, the exposure to these other fields may expose them to more knowledge. And the moral knowledge that they have may intimidate them. So here's another note that I have. 
the more one is able to see and understand how much knowledge there is out there to know, the more they may begin to minimize the amount of knowledge that they themselves have in comparison, which in turn leaves that leads them to feeling that they are not qualified, that they suffer from imposter syndrome. And what I want to know then, after reading that note, is if, if that's how a student has imposter syndrome, I'm thinking of that writer thing from earlier. Well, how do writers and artists experience imposter syndrome? What is it that makes them have imposter syndrome? So I have this note, this other note that says, while the application of the idea that range may lead to imposter syndrome to students relates to the comparison of their own knowledge to the knowledge possible for artists. It relates to the comparison of an image, the image of the genius or the natural talent. Artists begin to question their own talent when things become difficult. Because here's another note that I'm going to create that I haven't created yet, or actually I did. We confuse talent with ease. And that note says the common belief is that some people are gifted with talent from the womb and that executing their talent is easy for them. Therefore, if something requires work or practice, this is seen as a limitation to their talent. Shouldn't this be easier if I have talent? Shouldn't I be able to do what that person does? And from there, I have a question that I don't, I haven't explored yet. So for future, when I'm coming through this box again, I'll see this card and I'll have this question. And that question is, do things come easy for talented people? Like, is that true? Do, do things come easy for talented people? Or if I go back to the card before I had a question, is genius or natural talent an imaginary notion or is it real? All of that sprung from that first note about good students, so how, how they struggle more. That's the power of this type of thinking. And it's so different because I've been so used to the top-down thing. I've been so used to read a book, highlight, go back later, maybe, and do something with those highlights, right? But what this asks you to do is to do it in the moment. And the reason for that is when you are writing these notes in the moment, you know what the hell you're talking about because you literally just read it. You don't have to do the cognitive work of remembering what you were thinking when you made that highlight. And the moment you make that highlight is the moment you will care about that quote, that idea the most, because you just highlighted it. You care about it more than you ever will later. So you're more willing to do the work in the moment because you're more interested in it than you will be at any other point. So I've been slowly, slowly going through and trying to let this ideology overwrite the other ideology. It's hard, man. I'll tell you, it's hard because you're having to literally rewire your thinking, but it's so powerful. And I'm just, I'm so curious to see what's going to happen from it. I can already tell it's going to change the way that I prepare for these shows. So anyways, that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk a little bit about note-taking because that's what I just read this week. I read Jurassic Park and I read how to take smart notes. Hour, almost two hours. Is this becoming a two-hour show? I guess it is. Um, I don't really have any announcements tonight that I remember. 
But, uh, oh, I guess this is an announcement. So I told you last week, a uh, new website. So the new website is live. If you go to it matters, but it doesn't.com, the new website is live. It's there. Um, it's going to take me a little bit of time. I'm moving over everything manually. So I think I have like uh, 40, maybe 40 things up there. Um, but I slowly have to move over the episodes of everything, slowly move over old blogs and all of that stuff. So it's going to keep filling up more and more. Uh, but there's enough there to go look at for now. And uh, if you want, while you're there, you can sign up for the newsletter. It's there's literally a button in the bottom right hand. And the newsletter is just going to let you know when, uh, whenever there's anything new. Anything, and I don't mean the stuff that I'm, the old stuff that I'm adding and backlogging. I mean anything that's literally new. It's literally a newsletter. When I have news, I send out a letter. So that's what that's there for. And don't forget about the contact page. Go to the contact page. You can send me a message. Also get the links to uh, social media, which are easy. Twitter and Instagram, the real chat hall are the main accounts. Um, and of course, my favorite, call me up on Google Voice and leave me a voice message. Tell me a story. Tell me a joke. Uh, tell me what's on your mind. Criticize something that I said in the episode that I got wrong. Just be nice. Uh, the number is one 245 6098 Or like I said, you can just go to it matters, but it doesn't not come forward slash contact. And the link is there. As always, my uh, glorious Patreon supporters, I love you. Thank you. Um, I appreciate you all so much. If you are listening, you listen to the show on a consistent basis and you want to become a patron as well, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash chat hall and pop in there. What you're going to get now, I got. I still have to update this on the Patreon page, but... You're going to get the RSS feed for the bonus audios through Patreon. And then anything else that I do that's not audio is going to be on my website. And you get free access to the premium stuff on my website through Patreon. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do with that stuff yet, but that's it. The way Patreon functions and it being this one long stream of things made it really hard for me to want to do anything there other than the audio because anybody that joined would just have to keep scrolling back and scrolling back and scrolling back to find things. There's not really good organization on Patreon. So it didn't encourage, encourage me to do much other than the audio. Now that I can do it on the website and everything will be more organized for everybody, um, it may encourage me to do more. So that's what I'm hoping. Worst comes to worst. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the fact of only doing bonus audio every week. <laughs> Most people don't even do that. So yeah, patreon.com forward slash chat hall. And of course, speaking of Instagram, 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 something I brought up last week. Uh, and I'm taking, I'm putting up my old photos slowly of uh, dinosaurs, AKA payphones. If you see payphones out in the world, take a picture, post it, and tag the real chat hall. I want to see your dinosaurs. These things will not be around forever. We have to track them. We have to document them. And, uh, damn, I did not prepare the final statement. You know what? I always give you that. 
that the closing statement, I hate thinking of them on the spot. I always want to be prepared in some way. Uh, let's, uh, I got it. All right. I got it. I got it. We're going to get out of here. We've been here for two hours. Thanks for uh, sticking in there. By the way, share the episodes. I never say that. And if you listen and you're not subscribed, why are you listening without subscribing? Unless you hate me. <laughs> Subscribe, please. Share it with people who will like this show. Spread the word. Um, I don't want to say like a virus because I just did. Okay. <laughs> Be kind. Be kind like George Lucas. And uh, I love you, babies. Bye-bye.